I'm very excited today to have as my guest on on-site David von Spreckelsen, who is the Group Division President with Toll Brothers. Toll Brothers, as most of you know, is one of the largest housing development firms in the United States, and it was founded by Robert and Bruce Toll in 1967, the year that I was born. It's a national company, specializes in large new construction houses in the suburbs. It's got a huge presence now in New York City. David, welcome to OnSite. Very, very happy that you could join me. Thank you. It's good to be here. So uh, maybe you could start by telling me a little bit about you personally, uh, your history and how you found your way to become group president at uh, Toll Brothers. Well, I, I went to school for undergrad at the University of Richmond in uh, Virginia and uh, was an economics major, made my way to New York City through an on-campus interview in the retail industry, and I was an assistant buyer at Gordon Taylor. It was my first job out of school and in New York. The main thing was to come to New York, which is what I wanted to do, and I was pretty sure I was going to go to graduate school for an MBA, and I did do that. I went to Columbia, came out of Columbia, and worked shortly uh, for a brief time in management consulting for the retail industry. Didn't love that went back to school again, got a master's in urban planning. And coming out of there, I went to work at the city's Economic Development Corporation. And while I was at EDC, I worked with a lot of developers and I figured, you know, I'd like to be one. And I came out of there in 97 and the real estate market wasn't super strong then. There was nothing available in development for me, but I got a start in real estate finance. And I did that at Guardian Life for a period of time. And then uh, from there, went to CBS, where I was uh, working in uh, corporate real estate. And that was through a guy who I had met while I was at EDC. CBS was proposing to do uh, film and television studios on one of the, uh, one of the facilities that we had. And um, that, they didn't go forward. But later, he contacted me, and I went, went to CBS. Finally, after that, I got to the direction that I wanted to go in, which was actually real estate development. And I did that with a small development firm in Long Island City, Queens, Silver Cup Studios, also known for, well, at that time, when I when I joined, they had The Sopranos and Sex in the City there. So it was a pretty exciting place to work. And I was there about four years. Didn't really pull the trigger on anything major at that time on the development side. Did do a, a big rezoning on the Queens waterfront, did some affordable housing, but after about four years, I was looking again, and that's when Toll hired me, and it was to start a division in New York City to do something urban, obviously, and something quite different from what Toll had been doing previously, which, as you mentioned, was mainly single-family homes in the suburbs. Well, quite a story of where you started. By the way, most of you who've never met David and have never seen him, I think if GQ did a best dressed men of real estate, you'd be in the top five. And that wow. must come from your Lord and Taylor. No, you're always dressed very snappy and you, you, you know, obviously pay attention to presentation. And, you know, I think that's a big part of like branding and, um, you know, so. Well, if I'm number five, that, that puts you at number one. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. So, 
now at Toll Brothers, your day-to-day is doing what exactly? And uh, like, what, what does it, your average day look like? Yeah, so earlier on when it was, and it was literally just me, it was me in a um, one-room office in downtown Brooklyn. I was spending most of my time looking for sites because we had nothing. We, we hadn't been here before. We didn't, we weren't, you know, having working on assemblages. I didn't really know many people. So I, I contacted a lot of the brokers who I had been dealing with when I was at Silver Cup and said, you know, I'm in a new place now and I've got a, a lot of money and I'm really interested in buying sites. So early on, it was really acquisition, acquisition, acquisition. Then once we got going and we started doing projects, I eventually hired somebody to do acquisitions. And so day to day now, I spend um, part of my time working with him on acquisitions, but a lot of it is doing project work on the projects that we have here in New York City and now outside of New York City as well. And that entails, you know, working with the architects quite a bit, designers, working with my uh, construction people, working with the sales offices. So I'll, I'll go to a number of sales meetings every week. And that's the part of it that is nice because you're starting to get to the end of the project when you're finally in sales. And from there, you know, dealing with conveyancing once we we get things uh, ready to close. And then a challenging part of it is dealing with, you know, customers who've moved in and they've got punch list items and things like that. So the day gets filled up with a lot of stuff and no day is the same as the other day. But I'd say, you know, maybe a couple of hours a day I'm doing acquisitions and the rest of it is really focused on uh, bringing projects to uh, fruition. What was the first project that you landed when you joined Toll and they said, all right, you've got a lot of money now, go find sites. What was the first site you guys signed up and started working on? So the first site we signed up and I started working on never actually happened. But my wife and I recently had twins and we were uh, looking to move. And I was walking around Carroll Gardens looking at possibly buying a townhouse. And I noticed this uh, strip of blocks between Carroll Gardens and Park Slope that were on the Gowanus Canal, and they weren't zoned. So I, I knew the woman who was running city planning in Brooklyn at the time, Regina Meyer, asked her if there was the possibility that uh, city planning would consider rezoning this strip in between Park Slope and Carroll Gardens. And she said yes. So I entered into three contracts on three different properties on the canal uh, that were contingent on they're being rezoned because toll would not take that kind of zoning risk. And then worked on that for quite diligently for about five years. Finally got them rezoned. And with a, within a month of the rezoning, the feds nominated the Guans Canal for a Superfund site. And when that happened, we backed out. We didn't close. We, we walked away from a lot of time and money and effort, um, but we just didn't feel that we could do a, a luxury condo project on something that's being deemed a, a super fun site. So that one didn't happen. But shortly after getting into contract on those properties, I got into contract on a little site in Williamsburg. Uh, Brooklyn, a little 40-unit building that we did on North 8th Street, um, right across from what's now Waterfront Park. So it's North 8th and Kent. And then shortly after that, signed a contract to do a project in Manhattan 
110 3rd Avenue, which is 3rd Avenue between 13th and 14th Streets. And so all of that kind of got going at once. And then we did, we signed something in Long Island City, which I was familiar with the area because that's where Silver Cup was. And I was watching a rezoning that was going on there. So uh, when the Hunters Point District got rezoned, we bought a property in, in Long Island City. So those were really the first three, and that got everything kicked off. And this is like 2004, 5, 6, 7. And then we had the downturn and things changed. But those were the early ones. Do you have any regrets about Gowanus backing away from that? Do you think in hindsight it would have been a good thing to stay in contract and try and execute that? Or what are your thoughts on that side? I tried to make a really strong case to hold on to it, even knowing that the resolution of a Superfund site could take quite some time. We were in it at such great numbers. It's really a no-brainer area because it literally, you're essentially in Carroll Gardens and then across the way is, is Park Slope, two blocks from the subway. And the blocks that surround it, I don't know if you're familiar with Carroll Gardens, but beautiful, beautiful brownstones. I really wanted to hold on to it. At that time, the feeling was, from corporate that they didn't want to wait that long. We didn't really have a rental group. We do now, we didn't then. And the play, had we been closer to starting a rental group, the play would have been probably to to close and then make a determination which way to go. So when we didn't close, a couple of years later, uh, the, all the, the three property owners who had been in contract with us, you know, stayed in touch and found another buyer. And that buyer was Lightstone and they did a rental project there that's been very successful. So, you know, rental works because it's not like you're trying to get a mortgage on a condo in a super fun site and you might not be able to get an end loan from a bank. You know, rental, you go in and, you know, people people rent and they're there for a year and they move on or they do whatever they do. So when things start really kicking into gear on the cleanup, which hasn't even started yet a decade later, you know, people will make a decision at that point, you know, if, if, if they want to stick around. Our fear was that we would be in the midst of, you know, opening a sales office the day that guys are walking around in hazmat suits, and that would be taking too big a risk. But I, <laughs> I still live near, you know, I live in Borham Hill. I walk my dog down by the canal, um, smoke cigars down there. I love it. It bums me out so much that we didn't get to do a project there. So you said a word which kind of like has a connotation to me. You said corporate. So tell me a little bit about that relationship, how, you know, what the challenges are. A, who is corporate? What does that mean? Tell me a little bit about Toll Brothers and then how, you know, it works. It seems like, you know, they're a huge company, national company, and then they've given you, you know, the keys to the New York City kingdom, so to speak, to be their brand ambassador, lead them into the future of New York City development, something that was kind of new to them. How frustrating or difficult or what have been the challenges in communicating to corporate who have never done kind of like an urban project, especially in a city like New York City, and trying to get them to understand Gowanus and and the nuances of different neighborhoods and where potential value is? So it started with Bob Toll seeing that some of his customers in suburbia were becoming more interested in living in urban areas. So He really followed his customers to the urban area, hired me, and Bob Bob was an entrepreneur. Bob 
really let me do my thing here. And I wanted to be authentic. I wanted the, uh, the projects to be in cool neighborhoods. I wanted the architecture to be right. I didn't want there to be like a stamp of this big conglomerate coming from the suburbs and saying, this is what we think cities are about. So luckily, you know, Bob trusted me and Bob had, and he still does, he has a home in, in New York City, but he's had one forever. And so he loved New York and uh, let me roll with it. And I would say it was probably more hands-off early on when the, the rest of the company didn't really know much about doing business in New York or, or in a city. And so I had some successes, started you know at a good time in the market. So from when I bought the land to when we were selling the condos, there was certainly price appreciation. So everything went well, and and they were you know really uh, really a great relationship. I I went there for for money, for guidance, for you know, marketing department, uh, legal department, insurance, and they trusted what I was doing. So I couldn't be happier with the way it's worked out. When I said corporate with regard to Gowanus, now that was a big decision to make. Do we? Do we really spend all this money closing on these three sites where there's a super fund? And so that was Bob and that was, you know, our general counsel and our CFO huddling and saying, do we really want to go forward with this? And, you know, the decision they made that probably most companies would make. We were pretty shell shocked when it got super funded. I didn't even know what a super fund meant. I thought that's great. There's money for the cleanup, but that's really not what a super fund is. They want to do a cleanup, but they come after the property owners for the money. So it results in litigation that goes on forever. And that's why 10 years later, they haven't even started the cleanup there. So so who, so the real estate owners of the property on the site are responsible for the cleanup costs? Yes. Yeah, so the, the, what they say is that the properties that were abutting the canal contributed to the degradation of the canal. So they find out, you know, who it is, and they look back through the whole chain of ownership. The city of New York actually owned quite a few there, and it was the um, the Bloomberg administration and Toll who fought the Superfund once it was nominated, trying to keep it from being designated. And we fought that for about a year and lost. Uh, but yeah, that's it's the adjacent property owners who get hit with the bill. And they all, so what, of course, everybody tries to evade it, and that's why it takes so long. Right. So what actually is the issue? Does it need environmental cleanup? Does it need uh, structural integrity reinforcement? What's the problem? It's, it's cleanup. It's fairly complicated, but essentially there's toxins at the bottom of the canal that the state DEC you know, went to the feds and said, you know, th this should be cleaned up. So it's quite a process. They're going to have to dredge the canal and... Um, it's a, a lot of time, money, effort, and in the end, I don't know how different it's going to make the canal because in addition to the toxins that are on the bottom, what happens when there's a heavy, you know, we have a combined sewer system for most of New York City. So you have rain and you have sanitary, and when it rains really hard, it backs up and it goes into the canal. So even once you've done the um, dredging and gotten the toxins off the bottom of the canal, you will still have these CSO events periodically where you will literally have shit going into the canal and so that that's that's never going to go away i wonder if that's where jimmy hoffa has been it's possible it's one of the <laughs> possible locations 
Um, but that's fascinating. You know, it's like, it's, you know, I never knew any of this, um, but I've, you know, heard people speaking about Gowanus and obviously know the location and, and how prime it is. And it's fascinating to me how there are still neighborhoods in New York City in the boroughs that are still ripe for development, that are still considered pioneering. You know, one of those neighborhoods is Hudson Square. I know you guys did a project there on Charlton Street. And um, I've always been a long, strong proponent of that neighborhood because it's sandwiched in between three of the best neighborhoods in New York City, being the West Village, Soho, and Tribeca. And now it's on the water. Are you kind of always looking for the next neighborhood? You know, Gowanus was kind of pioneering. Hudson Square, definitely pioneering. Um, your project on 2nd Avenue and 14th was not prime. It was, you know, I guess considered kind of pioneering. Is that part of the business model of what you guys are looking to do? Well, you know, we look for opportunities where they present themselves. And maybe sometimes we look where other people aren't looking. But when you're doing condo, you can't be too pioneering because, you know, you might be in a neighborhood that doesn't really have the services that condo owners want to have. So I think you look to places where you're seeing some rental, some maybe luxury rental getting going, and then you feel like maybe it's ripe to go in there. And, and so maybe these are some of those neighborhoods. But when we did, we did a large project in Williamsburg, uh, Northside Piers, and uh, on the heels of the little one that we did at North 8th Street. And there was a lot of units to sell. And we found that the market wasn't that deep at that point, because people maybe felt it was too pioneering. There was no supermarket, no movie theater. And it ended up being a little more challenging than I thought. And, I, you know, I was basing it off of my own sort of living where I bought in Dumbo very early on in 1998 and thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And so when Williamsburg got rezoned, I thought, you know, everybody's going to flock here. And um, that, you know, wasn't necessarily the case. But we also, in the midst of it, had, you know, 2008 and Lehman tanking and then everything getting uh, stalled for you know, more than a year in terms of sales. Right. I mean, I think everyone eventually did flock to Williamsburg. And, yeah. you know, so I think you were right. Maybe the the market kind of killed you a little bit there in 2008. But I think you were definitely on point with seeing the future. You know, I guess timing, as in any deal, is a strong component of success and luck, you know. Yes, timing is everything. I tell, <laughs> I tell my project <laughs> managers here, much to their chagrin. So, um, what are you, what are you working on now, and uh, what can we expect, you know, to come to market from you guys? So, you mentioned Charlton, which we opened a little over a year ago, and that's a big project. It's 160 units, selling well. I like you. I love that neighborhood. It could be. We're in some great neighborhoods in New York City and, you know, including Manhattan, Brooklyn and Queens. But but uh, Hudson Square is definitely one of my favorites. So that's a great one. We um, you know with the condo market slowing down, we slowed down on the acquisition side for a while, but did buy a site at the end of last year at 103rd and Broadway. And we are in design on that one right now. And the other things keeping me busy, though, are. We've expanded a bit outside of New York City, and I've become part of those teams and responsible for a lot of that. So I now have a project in L.A. 
in Seattle and in Philadelphia. And the Philadelphia one's exciting because it's it's very close to our headquarters in Horsham, Pennsylvania, and it's the the first significant urban thing we've done there. And it's a it's a high rise glass building on Jewelers Row in uh, Center City, Philadelphia. Yeah, who's going to be the architect on that? We also have an office on the other side of the river here in New Jersey, which I'm now involved in those projects as well. But they, it was pretty separate from the New York City side for a good six or seven years. They had uh, done quite a bit of work with uh, Slice. And so they were the ones that had initiated the project in Philly. Uh, it took entitlement work. And so that's been ongoing for quite some time. But so Slice is the architect of record and also the design architect there. And so are you involved in all of the decision making, the selection of the architect, the interior designer, the marketing campaign, the unit mix? Um, you're running point on all of those things? On all of them. The, the ones outside of New York City got started before I was like fully ensconced in them. And Two of them we bought already entitled, so we were kind of stuck with what the architecture was. But I am doing all the interiors, all the uh, marketing, sales, and all of that. Yes, for everything. Out of the cities that you're working in, what would you say is the most difficult city to work in from a developer standpoint? Well, I would say it's cities where we haven't been able to do anything yet. We've been looking a lot at San Francisco which is a city I love, but it's a real difficult entitlement process. And we haven't found a site there yet that we felt very confident in doing. And, it, and it's hard to do it from a great distance. You kind of really need to have boots on the ground to get into you know, some of these cities. But we're actually very lucky in New York City because when you have a site here that's as of right, that doesn't require any kind of rezoning, you basically just design it, go to the building department and get a permit. Whereas in L.A. and Seattle, for example, in Philadelphia, there is really no as of right. There, there are people who are going to be involved in your designing of the building. It's just the way it is. And you don't know how long it's going to take. And the process can be, you know, it can maybe not as bad as when you're doing a full blown rezoning in New York City, which, like I said, at Gowanus, that took us five years, but there's certainly a period of years where you're getting through this maze of approvals and you don't always know exactly what they are, again, especially when you're coming from out of town. So New York City is great when it comes to that, as long as you're as of right. And then what about from the financing uh, side of things? You know, being I'm sure being with a company that's been very successful over many decades and having access to capital helps a lot that's a big bonus and so when i so we have started to do more project specific financing in the last couple of years but when i when i started in 04 we were doing things just the way we did it in the single family world which was a hundred percent cash we would buy a site we would design a site and we would build a site and we would do that all with cash so that was huge when I started here. Um, you know, when I was at Silver Cup and I was looking at something, I had to figure out, okay, now how are we going to figure out how to pay for it? Who are we going to go to for money? But with Toll, it was if if I found something, I could jump on it, and it 
it helped a lot, you know, in a competitive marketplace where other buyers are needing to finance and, and are slower to be willing to sign contracts, I could jump at it. Um, so that was nice. We're now trying to deploy capital more efficiently, and we often look to bring in equity partners on jobs and put debt on them. So that's that's a more recent phenomenon. And it also depends on the size of the project. So on Charlton, while it's a big project, we actually bought that back in 2012. And Verizon was a tenant in the garage there. They parked vans in there. They, when they finally got out, we moved forward with it. So that one's big, but that is all cash. Fascinating. Um, how, how do you think the market has changed over the last 10 years? How, how long have you been at all for? Um, no, it's like 15 years, 16 years, I guess. 16, yeah. yeah, 16 years. So how has the market changed in what ways? One way, certainly, that you see more and more lately, and you can attest to this, is early on, people seem to be very in tune to a certain neighborhood where they wanted to live. And now, you know, when you're selling units, it's for people, it's really about the deal. Where can I get the best deal? They're, they're less married to a neighborhood. And I see that as a, as a real significant change. And it makes things challenging. And part of that is because there is a large supply. So there is a, a lot of choice. But, you know, when I've looked to live somewhere, I would never say, oh, I'm going to look on the Upper East Side and I'm also going to look in Hudson, York, Hudson Square. You know, just, but today you have that. And so that's, that's certainly a challenge. Um, you know, recently too, we've, it's been difficult with the, not that we have been doing any rezonings lately, but you've been seeing a lot of rezonings fail, uh, large ones, ones that are sponsored and, uh, by the city because of uh, you know NIMBY and a different sentiment in a lot of the local politicians in city council and then you know what we see it in the at the state level too now that the assembly and the and the senate are both controlled by democrats and that's also impacted you know tax policy which has had an impact on us as well as you well know with increasing the percentage on mansion tax and transfer tax, that has been a, a recent challenge. And now they're talking about the Pete Terre again. Um, so, uh, and on the federal level, getting rid of the, the SALT deductions that you used to be able to do, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of forces right now that's, that's making it a challenge to sell homes. So what do you do in this kind of an environment? How do you adapt? I mean, because you, you, you know, there's actually a housing shortage in the United States, right? There's something like 4 million, a shortage of 4 million homes. And, you know, you guys are like one of the largest national home builders. So how do you look at, you know, what's going on politically in the environment and which seems to be so anti-development? It's almost like they're putting roadblocks in front of every developer, trying to make it more and more and more difficult for a project to pencil out. How do you adapt to this? What do you do? It, it is difficult and you have to find places where communities are still interested in growth. And so we've, we're doing more dense housing around the country than we had done before. Not, I'm not saying urban high rise, but I'm saying 
you know, townhouse, attached townhouse style stuff that's near commuter rail. We're also, uh, as a company, we, as I mentioned before, we now have a, a rental group. And so there are places where they might be opposed to doing luxury housing, but that they see a need for rental. And when you're talking rental, you're often talking about having affordable units being part of part of the development, and that becomes more palatable. We also very recently started doing uh, single-family rental in communities that, again, are saying, you know, renting is more affordable to the masses, and that's something that we might not necessarily oppose. Um, but here in the city, what, we, what we're doing differently, and, and, you know, part of this change with the salt deductions that we, I had never seen until very recently super high-end uh, customers being so concerned about monthlies. And it's because largely you can't deduct what you used to be able to. And so we've been trying to develop product here in the city that is more economical. It's not, the units are not as big. So the taxes will be lower. The common charges will be lower. And it'll be affordable to more people. So um, at Charlton, we have, for the first time ever in our developments in New York City, we're our, our unit size averages under a thousand uh, square feet, and that we had not done before. Even back in 2005, when we were doing stuff, you know, at, at 110 Third Avenue and the little building in Williamsburg. So we're trying to get smaller, uh, more efficient, uh, more affordable to more people. Yeah, I mean that makes sense, and obviously that's the strongest part of the market. You know, something that I've found interesting, and this is kind of a recent phenomenon that I've seen, is, you know, home ownership has always, since I was small, been kind of a part of the American dream, right? And a symbol of owning a part of that American dream. And it's interesting to see now with rates at historic lows, still people are looking to rent versus buy. And... You know, there isn't that aspiration of, okay, I'm going to own my own home with a white picket fence or my apartment in Manhattan. Uh, that seems to have gone away for now. Uh, hopefully it'll come back. But, you know, I think that's part and parcel, part of, you know, the, the buyer out there, the millennials who are now biggest part of our buyer group. And, you know, how do you stay in touch with the needs of your buyers? You know, you mentioned earlier on that, Bob Toll saw that a lot of his non-urban people living in single-family homes were looking to move into cities. How do you stay in touch with your buyers and understand what they're looking for in the next home? What do they want inside and outside of the home that's evolving into the next thing? Part of that is to have a, a wide product array that can be um, interesting to as many people as possible. And that's why we have branched out. You know, we do have a significant rental business. As I mentioned, we're starting this, you know, in addition to a multifamily rental, doing the single family rental. And, you know, the newer things are the, you know, the millennials, while they're forming households later. And so that puts a damper on on the for sale market, they are going to get there. And but they're going to want something that's 
not necessarily a 5,000 square foot home, but something that's smaller, more manageable price-wise and maintenance-wise, and probably, if not in the middle of the city, closer to urban areas so they don't have as long a commute and they can feel like they're part of a community and not rural, as you say. So uh, how many hours a day do you work? I don't keep count, but I usually get in about 8.30 and I try to leave around 6.30. I'm on my, um, I almost said BlackBerry, but that's a long time gone. I'm on my iPhone <laughs> doing emails and texts as you are from, you know, the moment I get up at six in the morning to the moment I go to bed at 11 at night. So kind of always working, um, my wife reminds me of. But in the office, it's usually about 8.30 to 6.30. Right. Um, you know, I'm a strong believer in having to create structured time for unstructured thinking. I, you know, I think that I've learned from and from seeing a lot of really successful people who've inspired me, who basically, you know, take a week off every now and then or structured time in their day just to really let their mind think, um, you know, instead of being reactive, you're proactively kind of giving yourself space to think and be free to think. Do you set anything up like that? Do you have any structured time for unstructured thinking where you can think about what you, you know, what you're going to be doing next? I really should, but I don't. I'm in the midst of it always when, when I'm here. We have so much going on and it's so labor intensive, you know, especially when it's, when it's condo and you have homeowners and you're a brand and they never want to let go of you. So I'm constantly barraged by so many different consultants and my employees and, and customers, but I really, sh I should do that. I mean, you know, I, if I'm away and I try to, you know, I go, the one time when, you know, I go away is like over Christmas where no one's working and then you really have time to yourself and your family. And I often try to take stock then and think about things, but I, I should do what you do. I guess you do that daily, you're saying? Um, well, I mean, I, I do meditate and, you know, I play, play music. Um, I, I try and create structured time for unstructured thinking, yes. And I'm trying to do it more and more and be more disciplined about it because, you know, there's a reason why we have our best ideas in the shower, you know, mm -hmm. and it's because you're free to think, you know. Um, I did a whole TED Talk on this uh, recently. And, and after my TED Talk, you know, I've read and, and heard from so many different people who are like very successful like yourself who kind of do this, um, whether they're aware of it or not. But I think you'd find that if you gave yourself the freedom to think, I call it the freedom to jam, mm -hmm. you know, you'll, you'll end up actually being much more productive. So, yeah, give it a yeah, shot. Yeah, I guess my, my jamming is like just, just throwing so many activities that, I'm, that I am jammed. But even, you know, even when I, in between meetings, when I, I, I just take the subway, I always have a book and I always read. And so I kind of don't let my mind wander much at all. And maybe I should. Right. How much do you read? Well, I don't read at home. So most of my reading is literally on the subway. And some days when I'm busy, I'm on the, on the iPhone on, on the subway and I don't even there are days when I carry a book around and I don't even open it. But um, 
I, I read probably a book a month because it's really not super dedicated, but I, 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 you know, I read the times from cover to cover in the morning. I still get it, the paper version at home. So I read a lot of uh, news and business stuff, um, but I do love to read novels and I'm reading one right now that is over 1200 pages and 1237 pages. And it's going to take me a long time. Is it one you'd recommend? Well, you'd have to read the first five and maybe you have, but it's, uh, it's an author named Carl of Nausgaard. Uh, he's Norwegian, but lives in uh, Sweden now. And his, he has a book series called My Struggle. And uh, this is the sixth and final volume. And the other five were not nearly as long as this. They were less than half this size. But it's basically just about this guy's life. And um, I don't know if you've ever read Proust, but... Rem- Sort of like remembrance of things past, but not as uh, not as detailed. Um, right, sounds uh, he, awesome. He has sort of a right combination of being deep and detailed, and then just being you know on the surface. And I, what I love about I read on the on the back cover of this book uh, where they you know people recommend it. There's a, a great line on here, and he put this on his book. The guy calls it. Um, some guy from Harper's Magazine calls it. A book that aggressively courts insignificance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, sounds fascinating. I'll, I'll, I'm going to yeah. check it out. Yeah. Do you have a Do you have a favorite building in in the world that you like? Look at and say, "Oh my God, that's my favorite building." Uh, I love the Chrysler Building, but of our buildings, my favorite is 205 Water, a building we did in Dumbo. Uh, I lived in Dumbo for 13 years. I, I lived there when we were um, we were designing and starting to build it, and then I moved out. But it's uh, architectural concrete and core 10 steel. It's super contextual in the neighborhood. It was the first new construction building in that neighborhood after the neighborhood got designated landmark status. And a true testament to it is that Bjarke Ingold bought uh, the penthouse there, and he lives there. Oh, well, that's a great endorsement. Yeah, um, yeah. The Chrysler Building is my favorite building in the world as well. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, just sold. I think AB Rosen just bought it for a song. That's a deal I don't understand because just sometimes when you look at a building, you have to look at just the bricks, or in this case, a little bit more than the bricks. But I think you know, if you look at the total amount that he paid for it, um, seems like it was very, very cheap. Yeah, because it's, it's just super inefficient floor plates for office and antiquated, but beautiful, beautiful building. Sounds like it should be converted into a high-end condo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, last question, and I've been you've been very, very generous with your time, and I'm very appreciative because I know you've got a lot going on. If you had to give yourself 25 years ago... It's a piece of advice, you know, people listening to this who are maybe looking at getting into real estate, getting into real estate development, what what would your advice be to them? It would be the same one you hear from a lot of people. You got to really find something you're passionate about and you love and then just stick to it to the end. And when I figured that I wanted to be a, a developer because I was working alongside of them, and I thought it was the coolest job in the world. I pressed and I, you know, I initially, as I said, 
started off in real estate finance, and that was only a little piece of the development pie. And then corporate real estate was just a very small piece of the pie. And I just stuck to it and pressed and pressed and pressed. And then did take what could be a fairly large risk. I was working at CBS in the BlackRock building, for, you know, Fortune 500 company, Midtown Manhattan. And I got an opportunity to get into development. And I took the chance. And I went to a very small company in Long Island City, Queens, where it was basically three guys working there, no place for lunch or anything. It wasn't Sixth Avenue in Manhattan. And, you know, this is before Long Island City took off. But to me, it was like, you know, I think this is really what I want to do. And I'm going to take the chance. And, and I think that's what you have to do. And yeah, and, but do it when you're young. You know, I was just starting out having a family. I, I wouldn't have been able to do that as I had more responsibility and, and more need for, for money. But that would be my advice. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And uh, I'll try and follow it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Toll Brothers brings to market over the next decade. And, you know, I think it's, it's a lot of that's in your hands, especially in these different markets. Um, looking forward, forward to seeing what you're doing in these different markets. And, um, you know, thank you for your time. And, uh, yeah. Congratulations on all the success. You know, it hasn't been easy, but I think you've done an incredible job and I congratulate you for that. Thanks very much, and, and you too. You've got a great organization there.